to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So we spoke a lot last week um, that Jesus is clearly teaching in this passage that paying taxes to a secular government is our obligation as Christians. You know, render refers to something that is owed. It's a responsibility that we have. Scripture teaches us very clearly that government is an institution by God, of God. Um, And we looked at Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. And essential and implicit in his teaching here is, is that the state is a valid institution. But the second half of the verse, which we didn't go into a lot of detail in verse 17, and to God the things that are God, sharply reminded them that They also had this abiding obligation to God. And they had formulated the question in their minds with the assumption that those two can't be together, that that they were totally incompatible with one another. But Jesus insisted that there wasn't a conflict. You know, their dilemma didn't didn't hold up. And it, it wasn't a government and not God or God and not a government, but it was a both, a both and government and God. And when he said, render to God the things that are to God, he was subtly stating, again, God's claim to total ownership of us. And that, you know, if you, which I guess some of us do from time to time, probably all of us do from time to time, depending on what it is, have a, have a, a problem with authority. But we, we've got to understand that if we've got a problem with authority, then really we've got a problem with God, right? So the coin was Caesar's because it bore his image, we're God's because we bear his image. In Genesis 1, 27 says, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. But I want to explore a little more of this render to God the things that are God's. And again, remember that render refers to repaying something that is owed. So what do we, as believers sitting here today, owe God? What did the people, you know, what did Jesus mean to to the people there? What did they owe God? And that's where Drew helped me, you know, with that passage in Malachi when I went there and I looked at that. And, you know, I think this all goes all the way back. I I saw the connection in my mind anyway, all the way back to chapter 11, verse 11, when it says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany. Well, he looked around. Remember, he didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. He just looked around. But we know what he saw because we've been through the rest of that passage. And, you know, he saw the crass commercialism. He saw the money changers. He saw the exploitation of the corrupt religious leaders. He saw the carrying out of the ceremonies without any spiritual significance at all. Right? He looked at everything, but he didn't say anything. The next day... In Mark eleven fifteen through 18, he cleanses the temple and he stops 
the commerce of the temple. And if you remember when, when we went through that, we came to the conclusion that he also shut down the religious rituals. Now, once again, he brings up, up the point that um, they aren't giving to God what they ought to be giving to God. And I think there's a clear biblical principle there that seems to run throughout the scriptures that there's always been a problem throughout history of mankind not giving to God what God commands that they ought to give. So Malachi gives us that example pretty clearly, gives us an understanding of the text that Jesus was teaching here. So if you'll turn with me to Malachi chapter 1. We're going to do a survey of Malachi. We're certainly not going to dive into it. We're just going to do a, what I've heard people say, you know, a, a flyover from 30, what's the cruising altitude, 30,000? 30,000 feet, <laughs> right? We're not doing a in and uh, through the... Yeah, we're not doing a low approach. We're not doing a fighter pilot approach. So Malachi chapter 1 begins with a grand assertion by our Lord um, in verse 2. Look what it says in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, the language that he uses there underscores the unchanging love of God for his people. What would be some ways that that would be true? What do you think? Then as well as now. What are some ways that God, that he could say that? I have loved you. Saying that to the Israelites. How, what, what's true? How, how could he say that? What had he done for them? Sure. Yeah, that goes way back with them, right? And you know, the, there, there's the reoccurrence of remembrance in the scriptures, isn't there? And boy, did I have it wrong somewhere, um, I don't know, my third year of being saved, maybe. Um, I uh, I thought I needed to get beyond that. But boy, scripture just always goes back to remembering what God has done for us. And it, it um, that really rang true for me several years ago. I picked up this devotional that we have for sale over at the church office um, called, I think it's called Voices of the Past. Have y'all ever seen that? It's a compilation of Puritan writers that they've put together one day daily devotionals out of it. And I noticed that those guys seem to always go back, right? And when it hit me was, I used to know a guy at another church I went to that, that was a great big guy and his name was Larry, and every time we got saved about the same time, and every time I would see him, we would approach each other, and he would just start weeping, and he would just say, "I just can't get over it," and I'm like, "Get over what?" You know, and he, and he's like, "You know what God has done for me." You know what, Larry got it, right? Larry got it, and boy, it was just convicting to me, you know, because I was trying to race on or something, but you know when. When, when you have a bad day, or at least when I have a bad day, one of the things that just reels me back in is to just think that I've loved you, you know? I mean, um, if you think about in Philippians chapter 4, where um, I always like to, and I think I've told you all this before, but I always like the last few words of verse 5. 
if I were, I wouldn't have put verse 6 starting. I would have moved 6 up to the last few words of verse 5 if they asked me to put the numbers where they are. But anyway, it says, being, um, the, the end of verse 5 says, the Lord is near. And then verse 6 says what? Be anxious for nothing. Well, you know, if God really is near me, what a remembrance that is for me when I'm having a bad day, right? And then, you know, you carry that all the way out to the right thinking that comes in, in verses 8 and 9. Whatever is lovely, whatever is this, 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 and that, Paul says, then think about these things. So many times I'll say to myself or to somebody that I'm talking to that may be having a difficult time, well, what is something, think about what is true and lovely, and I'll say, what is something that's true? And I don't know. Well, how about the fact that God loves you? Well, yeah. I said, well, you can think about that, right? And, I mean, what's the simple children's thing? You know, Jesus loves me, right? This I know. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I got to go way back there. I got to become a little kid again in my thinking so I can move forward and see what God's done. So he says in verse 2 there, I have loved you says the Lord, you know, his unchanging love for his people. So having established how God has displayed his love for Israel in verses 1 through 5, Malachi in verse 6 charged first the priests and then the people with slighting that love. You know, I hope and pray, I'm sure I've done that, but I hope and pray that if I get in that mindset again at some point in the future, that God would arrest me in it quickly, right? So in chapter 1, starting in verse 6, the sins of the priests are considered. Malachi leveled several very serious charges against the priest, three of them in particular. First, they had polluted the altar. Secondly, they had profaned the name of God. And thirdly, they have perverted the covenant. And for this, the priests would experience punishment at the hands of their God. Punishment from the hands of their God. So to officiate at the altar, that was a great honor, right? A great honor and, and, and a very solemn responsibility. Yet these priests polluted that altar by their attitudes and their actions. Because guess what? Where do your actions come from, right? Yeah, it comes, it, it, everything starts in your heart, in your thinking, Right? And then that leads to how you are feeling. And then your feelings lead to your actions. So these guides, had, they had bad attitudes in their hearts, and that led to their, their bad actions because they weren't feeling it, if you will, right? So Malachi accused the leaders of, of religion, the priests, of despising God's name and desecrating his altar. So... To set up the accusation, he sets forth a proposition. And I just, as I read this this week, I just love the way this goes. I mean, it's like you're right there listening to this conversation back and forth. It was, it was really, really neat, I thought. But So the proposition is God is deserving of honor. And he sets that up in verse 6. Look at it. A son honors his father and a servant his master. So God was the father of Israel, right? The father by creation, by election, uh, by guardianship, by preservation. You know, the Israelites are called the children of God in Deuteronomy 14. 
yet God was not receiving the honor that was due a father. And he also didn't receive the fear which a servant should feel for his master or king. It goes on in verse 6 of saying, well, I'll just start again. As a son, a son honors his father and a servant his master, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? God answers, verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. I mean, do you have any a sense of the audacity of these guys? I mean, they're talking like a unrespectful child speaking irreverently to their mom or dad. I mean, really? I mean, talking to God like this? So, And these are the religious leaders. The priests were offering polluted food on God's altar. And it's uh, rejected, unqualified, unfit. They're, they were not being offered in accordance. They, they'd even abandoned the ceremonial law of Leviticus 22 by this point. The priests recognized, of course, because they were priests, they were educated in the law, the seriousness of the charge. They recognized that to offer polluted offerings was, was tantamount to polluting God himself. So instead of repenting, with blunt boldness, they ask, how have we polluted you? Really? Well, Malachi shot back the answer by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Instead of regarding the temple service as an undeserved honor, they regarded it as contemptible and a miserable job. Right? The priests demonstrated their contempt for the altar by offering unholy sacrifices. It had just become... Now, keep in mind as we're going through this, what we were in in Mark 11 with the temple and what was going on there. You know, all those years, hundreds of years between the two, and you see where, where we've gotten, right? We know that according to Leviticus 22, that blemished offerings were forbidden by the law, that the sacrificial animal had to be perfect, yet these priests did not consider evil to present a blind, lame, Sick animal. You know, let's take the worst and give it to God is basically what they were saying. So look at verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So Malachi <clears throat> challenges them to, well, take that and give it to the government and see what you get, Right? I mean, would the IRS take less than what they want? You want to say it like that? Certainly not, right? So such, you know, the priests, though, they, they just continued and, and thought that these animals were appropriate for the king of kings as a sacrificial offering. And I was scared to death at verse 10, to be honest with you. It's still, I don't even like to look at it. Look what it says. Oh, that there were one of you who would shut the doors. Whoa, really? I mean, what, what if that were said about us as a church? You know, just shut the door. 
because what you're doing to your God is not what God calls for, that you're, you're offering polluted worship to God. So, of course, that's a reference to the inner court where the great altar stood. But rather than to continue to insult God with their tainted sacrifices, Malachi says, you know what, it would be better if you just shut the whole thing down. Well, what did Jesus do in Mark 11, right? He shut it down. Sacrifices <clears throat> here were no longer accomplishing their purpose. And uh, it was really, they were lighting the altar of fire in vain, just doing it for nothing, just wrote religion. Um, and actually, the sacrifices, <clears throat> since they were being done this way, brought more harm than good. They angered God rather than pleased him. And that's why he says, just shut it. Look at the rest of verse 10. <clears throat> oh, that there were one among you who would just shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. And the reason God no longer desired temple worship is really stated bluntly and personally there, right? I have no pleasure in you. Worship acts are not acceptable unless the worshipers are acceptable themselves to the Lord. And by their attitude, these guys had forfeited their right to be worship leaders. And God, in turn, says, I won't accept your offerings. Well, again, that's exactly what Jesus did when he cleansed the temple, shutting down the system. So they polluted the altar, but the, the priests also profaned the name of the Lord, as if the polluting of the altar wasn't enough. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you did not lay it to heart. So because of their contemptuous attitude, the priests merited punishment from the Lord. The, the word there, the com- command, can be translated punishment. Um, the, the threat or announcement of judgment is what that is because God ordained it, so it's his judgment. And the priest would face judgment if they would not listen, verse 2 says, if you will not take to heart and give honor to my name. So, you know, the, the case is building and building with these guys, right? So what, what must the priest do to avoid the command? God says that they must give honor to my name, and they weren't doing it. So, you know, that I in turn, well, am I doing that? Are we as a church giving honor to God's name? And the, isn't that the primary function of a priest to, to, to do the sacrifices for the Lord, for the people, and to, to uh, honor the name of God and, and, and uh, show the people, model that for the people? So failure to conform to the requirements of the Lord, he says, will bring down the Lord's curse. You call that the Lord's wrath upon the offending priests. He says, I will send the curse upon you. In fact, the Lord, he says really there that he's already done it. I have cursed you already. So the wrath of God had already begun to work in, in the ministry of these priests. Turning a blessing into a curse was considered really the ultimate punishment. So they polluted the altar, they profaned the name of the Lord, and thirdly, they perverted the covenant. And, you know, a covenant is a binding uh, agreement between two parties, 
And spiritually, the breaking of one's oath brings inevitably the wrath of God, both temporal judgment now and eternal judgment later. So in their sin against the Lord, the, the priests, they corrupted the covenant that God had made with Levi. And um, look at chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. I know there's a lot of scripture reading in this, but it just rings so true, so clear. Um, chapter 2, 5. My covenant with him, meaning Levi, was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. So God saying, I gave life and peace to Levi. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned from, my, from iniquity. Sounds like he's doing it all right, isn't it? For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So the covenant with Levi involves certain privileges and responsibilities, and um, Malachi sets that idea out for us when he says that the covenant was to grant life and peace. Uh, God gave Levi, Levi enjoyment of life. He gave him abundance and prosperity along with the blessings of peace. You know, and God gave Levi fear, right? A proper good fear of the Lord. And there's really, and what I looked at, there's kind of two views on that. <clears throat> Some take this fear to be reverence uh, imparted by God to Levi through him to the priesthood. Another view is that God granted the blessings of life and peace so that he might fear God. Um, the very thought of losing the high privilege of priesthood by disdain or carelessness was horrifying to Levi. Well, in either case, it really doesn't matter because Levi, Levi responded on his part with the covenant in the second half of verse 5 where he says, He feared me. Levi feared God and he stood in awe of my name. So instead of profaning the name of God, Levi stood in awe of God's name because of the covenant, the agreement that he had with him. So the proper response to God's gracious gifts is, should always be what? Gratitude? Yeah. And gratitude would, would involve reverence, right? And I think humility. Why, why should gratitude to God involve humility? What do you think? There you go. Just so undeserving, right? And again, I didn't always think that way in my early Christian life. You know, I thought me and God did this thing together. But boy, did it rock my world when I figured out that God's the one that did it. In spite of me, right? In spite of me. Because according to Paul in Colossians, uh, or not Colossians, Ephesians chapter 2, I was dead. So how in the world could I cooperate with God if I was dead? Right? Dead people can't do anything. Um, you know, if you poke a corpse with a pen, it's not going to respond. Well, a um, spiritually dead person is not going to respond either. God awakens us. And man alive, when I realized that, I just wanted to shout, right, from the mountaintops. In spite of Tim, God worked in my life. And 
Um, that's what these guys were missing. And you know, it goes all the way back to Mount Sinai that God had stipulated that the tribe of Levi, Levi led by Aaron, be set aside for priestly service. In spite of themselves, God set them aside. So Malachi is suggesting that those original priests took their responsibilities very seriously and carried out their functions reverently to God. But not the priest we read about here, right? Look at verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble, wow, by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. So these guys have polluted the altar, profaned the name, and perverted the covenant of God. Well, that's them, right? What about the people? What about us? You know, how... How do we render to God the things that are God's? We see where they fell far short. What about the people of the community? Well, they also stood guilty before God of these of many terrible sins. And in chapter 2, verse 8, it says, again, that the, the, these priests had caused many to stumble by their instructions. So could the ones that stumbled by the priest's bad instructions stand before God and say, well, it was the priest's fault? What do you think? I mean, have you ever had that question? You know, what about people that are flocking to false teachers this morning, right? And there's lots, is there not? In the name of Christ, false teachers. So are the parishioners there not responsible? Because after all, this is what the teacher is telling them to do, right? Who's responsible? You know, we are individually, right? And, and that's what's going on. You can see that here. Even though they'd gotten bad instruction, they were still responsible before God. So their first way of sinning is in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. They were violating God's law by marrying foreign woman, women and divorcing the wives of their youth. I know that's a long passage, but let's read that. 2.10 he says, have we not all one father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Great question, right? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. 
For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in spirit and do not be faithless. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? So the people, after this sin of uh, leaving, you know, not staying with the covenant relationship that they had left that that was their first way of sinning the second way the people were sinning was they had become skeptics this one is scary to me i could see where we could go down that path verse 17 you have wearied the lord with your words but you say how have we wearied him by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the lord and he delights in them or by asking, where is the God of justice? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Skepticism, where is God, right? And, and again, they wanted proof. You know, I mean, I guess uh, these guys, if they were alive today, they'd all live in Missouri, right? The show me state. I mean, just back and forth. Here's what you've done. How? Uh, show me. How have we done it? Malachi offered as proof the fact that they were saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. You know, that's an age-old complaint, is it not? The wicked, look at, look at the wicked, look at them prospering. When here I am trying to be as righteous as I can and I've just got a low estate. You know, do you ever get that mindset? You know, I think we all do, don't we, to some degree or another. And this reminded me of some dear friends in, in Peru where that place I visit there, Daniel's been there before. This this place, um, it uh, they they have the road paved now from the top of the canyon to the bottom, but they still have landslides. So all it did was make it maybe ten minutes quicker than the dirt road. But nonetheless, they've started to pave it out through the canyon there, and the government, the Peruvian government's paying for this. Well, there's a lot of corruption that goes on within that. Well, the brothers, the Christian brothers there they're they're having a hard time with that because they were offered those jobs as well right and the government's paying and this has been a multi-year project going on because about the time they get you know a mile of it done you know they're working on the second mile and a mudslide comes and washes the first mile out the engineer it's just an engineering nightmare i don't know anything about engineering but i can tell you know that's this just something's not right but so it's kind of a long-term job, I guess, is what I'm saying for these guys to work on the road. And the brothers in Christ in the church that aren't playing into the corruption of all of that are seeing their friends prosper. You know, they're seeing their friends be able to buy a, a donkey. You know, gosh, I, if I had one of those, I could, you know carry more stuff to market or plow my field better or whatever. So it, um, it, it's an age-old thing, and, and we do it here as well, right? The wicked prosper while the righteous are, are low in, in a state. And you see that a lot in Psalms as well. You know, the psalmists write that way a lot. You know, look at them. Oh, poor me, right? But the underlying assumption here is that prosperity results from the divine blessing and, and implies divine approval. It's, it's the idea that God must be pleased with the wicked or else they wouldn't be so blessed. 
Now, there are a lot of very, very, very wealthy Christians, and praise God for that, because ministries like mine wouldn't operate if there weren't, right? But, and, and the churches wouldn't operate if there weren't. But what is true is who are the wealthiest people in our country, Christians or non? None, right? By and large, none. So does that mean that, they're, that, that since they're wicked, God's blessing them? You know, of course not. And, but the, the idea that these guys had was that's what it was. Well, the, you know, that must be right. Or if that's not right, then they go on and they say, well, where's the God of justice? Right? Uh, that's the second complaint. You know, the logical conclusion would be that either evil is pleasing to God or there's no God of justice. One of the two has to be true. And, and skeptics through the, through the ages have have echoed those kind of arguments against God for years. They were doing it then and still today, right? Well, the third sin of the people then is dishonesty. And I think you could even say theft. And you see that in uh, chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Um, he says, um, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Turned aside. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Is that not a blessing there? You've turned aside from my statutes. God says, turn back to me, and I'll, and I'll be there. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. There they are, back and forth, back and forth. So this disobedience was an ever recurring sin in Israel. I mean, he says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes, disobeying God. Um, You know, to turn from the statutes of God, uh, even in our attitude alone, in our thinking, leads to disregard of practicing the principles of God that he wants us to practice. So the charge is leveled against them that you've not kept the statutes. In fact, they... They deserve to be rejected as covenant breakers, but God graciously pleads with them to return. And yet, the shameless people respond, how? As if they didn't know, right? And the the answer indicates how thoroughly depraved they had really become. The self-righteousness that they were practicing blinded them from their own need of repentance. Well, who does that sound like? Sounds like the guys back in Mark, 11 and 12, right? They, they, they'd gotten so far out. So this, the specific charge here is couched in the form of a rhetorical question when he says, will a man rob God? The people deny the charge. They demanded proof again. How have we robbed you? Well, the Lord fired right back with the response with regard to tithes and offerings. So Malachi then indicates the predicament which had happened to the people because of this sin the disobedience of the people in respect to their tithes and offerings had brought a curse upon them. And um, he, he says in verse 9, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, no, I, don't, I didn't find anything anyway that indicated what the curse was, but it probably took the form of a drought, poor crops, some type of economic depression, I'm not sure, but... Even while the the curse was in progress, the evidence of the people continuing to rob God is there. 
They still weren't coming back to God. And as if that weren't enough, there was the sin of disillusionment and cynicism on top of that. The last uh, accusation against the people revolves around um, cynicism. Look at verses 13 through 15. Chapter 3. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in a morning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So God charges that the words of the people had been hard and harsh against him and that the hardened sinners denied the accusation by means of another rhetorical question. So here they go again. So the Lord spelled it out for them, right? The people were negative in their attitude towards serving God. He says, you have said it is vain to serve God. In other words, serving God is an unprofitable business. I'm just not going to do it. They thought that serving God demanded too much. And you know what? The return just didn't have it. You know, no, no big return there. They saw no value in keeping the ordinances or the rituals of the Lord. Verse 14, he says, And what profit is it that we have kept this charge? Wow. You know, what profit is there in it for me? They were observing the ordinances of God. They think um, they fasted, they mourned, they lamented. But worshiping God was boring to them. You know, God help us if we get there. Right. When the people said we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts, most likely they were exaggerating in order to articulate their disgust of temple ritual. Well, I go to church. Right? Can't you just hear that? And then the people viewed the wicked as more blessed than the righteous. Again, that concept. And now we call verse 15. Now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So the arrogant in the Old Testament are these people that are self-willed, malicious, unprincipled, turbulent, those who defied God at every turn. And, you know, these skeptics here, they, they say the workers of evil, well, they're all built up. They prosper in spite of their wickedness. Where is this God that is going to judge? So in the opinion of these skeptics, those who arrogantly disregard God's law are happy and prosperous. And he even says, also they try God and, and they're delivered. They seem to challenge God, yet escape with no punishment. So in the eyes of the people, serving God was no benefit and disobeying him brought no punishment. Um, I counseled with a young man yesterday, and we looked at um, the fruits of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And I, I had him read the fruits of the flesh first, and I said, what, "What does that sound like?" And he said, "Man, that sounds like the partying lifestyle." This is a 16-year-old, and I said, "Yeah, that sounds fun, doesn't it?" And he's like, "Yeah." And I said, "Read the next section, the fruits of the spirit." And you know, he was of the mindset that. That the this way, I, I feel this is what my flesh wants. Therefore, you know, nothing really bad has happened to me. So 
I, uh, I'm going to go down that path, right? Of course, he's not seeing anything of e- eternal mindset there at all, is he? He's seeing strictly that he hasn't been, well, actually, he has been caught now, so <laughs> hence the counseling session. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, you see the point there, right? Um, you know, they seem to challenge God that, you know, that they could escape punishment here. You know, no, no consequences. You know, there's, there's the biblical principle, you reap what you sow. If we could get teenagers to, if, if I knew that, well, I don't know if it made a difference. You know what I mean, though? <laughs> um, we, we have to understand that biblical principle. The world would call that what? Cause and effect. Right. I mean, it is flat out true. You know, I mean, there's there's uh, it's just hammered in stone that it's there. So in the eyes of many serving God, no benefit. Disobeying him brought no punishment. So uh, why not just do the bad thing that feels good to the flesh? Right. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. No big deal. But thankfully, the way that our Lord always brings things about in, in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 3, among the skeptics was a group of faithful people, just like the 7,000 in Elijah's day who didn't bow the knee to Baal. In the midst of all this national skepticism and unbelief, they would, they would encourage one another with their words. God did not forget those people. He says in verse 16 of chapter 3, a book of remembrance was written before him. The Lord heard the words of these faithful saints, and and those words were written before him. Right. So it, it says in this book of remembrance, the Lord would take note of those who fear the Lord and those who think on his name. So the Lord really does assure believers that those who truly reverence God and are possessed with a God consciousness that they won't be forgotten. I guess for us today, the, you know, the, the thing is, um, can we live with that eternal mindset of knowing that this is not our home, that our home is in heaven? So get our eyes off of this and, and into heaven and know that, that we won't, haven't been and won't be forgotten. So I think all of that is what it means to have a mindset to render to God the things that are God's. And for those people that were standing there when this correspondence was taking place in Mark chapter 12, that end, that correspondence ended with they marveled at him. Remember that? And then Luke in his account in chapter 20, verse 26 of Luke, it says, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So again, I think that there were people there that connected the dots, and they knew, wow, you know. And um, so I, you know, questioned myself, you know, have I been skeptical about God's promises to me? Have I been dishonest with God and been robbing him? Have I turned aside from God by not keeping his statutes? You know, those are ways that I can check my thinking into getting back in focus and giving to God what he wants because it's it's his anyway, right? Render to God the things that are God's. And when we've got that mindset, then Caesar's going to get his anyway, right? So...
We'll pick back up next week uh, where we left off last week in Mark chapter 12.